This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon. Welcome to On Target here on VOCM. I'm Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain today. She is off. And today we're going to be exploring a couple of different themes on the program. The first of which is going to be the cruise industry, something that uh, a lot of people are really excited about. The cruise industry, especially here in St. John's, Cornerbrook, uh, really going to start to ramp up again. we got a bunch of ships that are uh, going to be coming into the harbor over the next few months. So something that a lot of people are going to be watching closely. And currently on the line. I have someone who is a big expert in the cruise industry. He's Ross Klein, a month professor who has done ex- some extensive research into the cruise industry, not just uh, here in Canada, but across the world as well. He joins me now. Hello. Hi, Richard. Excellent. Well, Ross, thank you so much for joining the program today. And well, I guess you're, um, for someone who is um, has spent so much time researching the cruise industry, must be interesting for you now to watch the industry, I guess, come out of the pandemic uh, this summer and uh, into the next couple of years. Yeah, well, it's interesting to watch because the industry wants to be, wants to pretend that the pandemic is not only past, but that uh, COVID nineteen is no longer a problem. So they're, they're sort of taking a uh, uh, head in the sand sort of approach, whereas the experience on many ships these days is that COVID is very much alive, and not that it's. Um, not that it's often, you know, more than two or three percent of the people on board, but it's it's a continuing problem, uh, you know, across the industry. And I mean, just this past week, uh, two ships put out advisories to passengers requiring them to, again, wear masks on board because of elevated cases. So that's interesting. I know that when the um, when the announcement was made a few months ago that the cruise industry was returning to St. John's, one of the big messages was that uh, the there are some very stringent protocols in place and and that uh, there are strict rules that they have to abide by. Um, so with, with that in mind, what I guess are are some of the big challenges now that you foresee the industry having to face uh, moving forward? Well, I guess my question is, what are the stringent rules that they have to follow? Um, you know, the, the, the most of the rules are set by the U.S. government, by the CDC. They've been reducing the percentage of people that need to be vaccinated on board ships. Um, and they've also re- made, uh, have loosened uh, the requirements with regard to mask wearing and other sorts of ways in which you might mitigate uh, the, the virus. So, I mean, I guess I'm not very reassured when somebody in the city makes proclamations that is that the industry is vigilant and going to watch out and that we're all safe i i i find that problematic now i'm not trying to be in, create an alarm and say oh it's horrible and there's risks every time a ship comes in i think the problem is that uh we have ships that will be stopping in st john's that are going to have a hundred people, perhaps, uh, with COVID-19, and shouldn't the port know that in advance, and shouldn't we in the city know that in advance, so that precautions can be taken? Uh, that's you know reassurances that there's all kinds of things in place doesn't protect us from that. 
And now I know that one of the things was mentioned as well was that uh, these cruise ships, they have to do a check-in, I guess, with uh, with the federal government before coming into our waters. And one of the things that was mentioned to me about that was that there's, a, I guess, a scale that they have in order to uh, judge the risk on board in terms of COVID. Um, do you... Do you, what do you know about that? And do you think that that's enough? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, so when they enter, enter Canadian waters, let's see. So that must be 10 days before they get to Newfoundland because they maybe enter in, in Nova Scotia and go to go to Montreal and work their way back. So, yeah, I mean, I guess maybe having information that's 10, 10 days old is, is, is quite acceptable to people here locally. Um, I think when you have a ship coming in, one should have current information um, and, you know, not reported to somebody in some amorphous federal office, but to the people in St. John's, Newfoundland, where the ship is coming. Um, I, I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, I mean, I mean it, just in terms of uh, there was a ship that visited Cornerbrook yesterday, the first ship of the season. Uh, it's under investigation by the CDC for uh, for for COVID-19. They weren't advised. The people in Cornerbrook, I don't believe, were advised before the ship came in of that fact. And that ship would be visiting again uh, in in about a week. Um, and I don't think it, it, it's going to leave Canadian waters in that time. So, Again, I, 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 I guess it's kind of displacing the responsibility to, to the federal government or to somebody someplace else doesn't protect us here in St. John's. And the city needs to be a more – they need to be more direct and, uh, and, and not be disingenuous in, in looking out for the interests of the people who live here. How does the rules that we have in place here compare to uh, what you know about how they're responding internationally? Uh, well, most most ports uh, are, are not taking a particularly strong view with regard to protecting uh, uh, with regard to protections around cruise tourism. Um, you know, but I think that's also related to most places loosening um, re- requirements with regard to foreign travel. Um, now, so I, get, I mean, my question then would be, why wouldn't? Because if you, if you're a, a foreign traveler into Canada, there are certain requirements, and I would requ- I would wonder why those same requirements aren't being applied to cruise passengers. So before they come to St. John's, do, 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 are they going to have a, a, a test to confirm they they don't have um, COVID? Uh, yeah, I guess those are the questions that we will need to uh, to have answered. My understanding from uh, when I went to that event a few weeks ago was that um, that all all passengers were uh, going to be required to have a test before boarding. But I guess we'll see how that uh, works out. Um, but 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 see, the, 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 if they all had a test before boarding. And if all the crew had a test before boarding and that's that, those are big ifs then how is it that we have 3% of people on a cruise ship uh, having COVID? I mean, those two things don't correspond. So when the CDC does an investigation, that means over 3% of the people have have been reported ill. Um, So obviously being vaccinated, which isn't required any longer for cruise ships, and being tested, which may be done 
a week ago or two weeks ago before they get to St. John's, that also doesn't seem to be uh, mitigating uh, COVID on cruise ships. So what does need to be in place in order to mitigate these risks? What isn't, what isn't there now that you think should be? Well, I, I think the cruise ship they, it, it does uh, does what they can, and in, in, and as I mentioned before, uh, they are requiring on, on a couple of ships now when they have elevated numbers, requiring people to again wear masks. So I think the cruise ship wants to contain this as best they can. The thing I'm advocating or I'm trying to suggest is I think in the same way as the cruise ship protects itself, I think each port needs to protect themselves. So the port needs to know how many people are being offloaded who are known to have COVID-19. And the ship knows that because these people have to usually report to the infirmary on board and records are kept. Looking at the last couple of years as a whole for the cruise industry, how has the industry, I guess, been changed in the last couple of years? Well, certainly the uh, the hiatus from offering cruises because of COVID-19 uh, has been a uh, somewhat devastating in terms of the economy of the industry. They've they've lost you know billions of dollars. So that certainly changes things. As they're re- returning, it's trying to be business as, as usual, but <clears throat> already we've seen that they've uh, they've increased onboard revenue sources so they've increased prices for in their bars they've increased the mandatory gratuities um so that they are while cruise pricing may not increase very much the, the amount that they're going to be generating after cruise pricing um is is elevating and so people are going to see cruises cost a bit more than they used to We're speaking with Ross Klein. He's a professor at Memorial University who has done loads of research into the cruise industry. Uh, We're going to take a quick break here on On Target. And when we come back, we're going to dive into some of the research that he's done over the course of his career and uh, some of the cool findings from that. Uh, We'll be right back. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to On Target. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain, who is off today. And uh, right now we're talking about the cruise industry, and we have a great person on to talk about that, Ross Klein, Memorial University professor who has specialized in uh, research in the cruise industry. And now I wanted to talk, Ross, a bit about about some of your research because uh, when I was doing some background research for this show, I, I, I realized that you've done some research in some very interesting areas. Um, I guess just to start off, uh, looking at your research, uh, I guess a bit broadly, what, what are some of the things that you've discovered uh, over the course of your career that maybe, I don't know, surprised you or things that you found out that uh, you thought were really interesting? Well, I think one of the one of the things I found most interesting, and in, in this was a relatively recent study, um, was because most ports get excited about cruise ships. They think, "Wow, if we have cruise ships, we're going to make all kinds of money, and the industry will 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 tell ports that yes, our passengers spend on average hundred dollars per per per, uh, per port call. So if you get a two thousand passenger ship, you're you're going to be getting passenger spending of over two hundred thousand dollars U.S. 
So that that that's the way in which ports get drawn in in a very positive way. Um, we we did a study, myself and two colleagues down at Acadia. We we did a study, and using the the data in Halifax, uh, we we interviewed uh, passengers from every single ship that, that stopped in Halifax in a year, and we looked at their passenger spending. We then compared our results with the cruise industries, what they said to the port, what they said passengers spent. And we also had a list of the specific ships that they used to generate their numbers, which, of course, were in ours because we had all ships. They only had a sample of ships. And what we found in the analysis was that um, the industry oversampled ships that spent more per passenger and undersampled ships that were spending uh, uh, less. So as a result, they ended up with, with, with the ability to teleport that passengers are spending, I think they were saying somewhere around $80, $80 $90, maybe close to $100 per, per, per stop in Halifax, whereas the actual amount that we had from a study of those exact same passengers from those exact same ships uh, indicated it was overstated by about 25, 30 percent. Um, so that, that was alarming because uh, it's something we had known anecdotally for years, but actually to have that demonstrated through hard numbers was not just interesting, but quite, uh, uh, quite startling. So what does something like that mean for the industry then? What, what, what does that, I guess, what do those numbers translate to? Well, what it means is that ports need to be, what I would say is ports need to be more realistic about the revenues they're likely to get from cruise ships. So rather than listening to what the cruise ship tells them that they're supposed to earn, because then if they don't earn enough, they're, they're going to blame themselves like they're not doing a good enough job. So instead of relying on what the cruise ships say they're going to get per passenger, is ports need to do their own research and need to understand what passengers, um, well, I should say, understand how best to generate income from passengers. Um, it's not, you know, they, they uh, the ports can, you know, St. John's is a good example of being perhaps passive in many ways. Uh, I have a colleague in Germany who visited St. John's a couple of years ago on a cruise ship, and she was uh, uh, troubled or, or disadvantaged because in her party, there were six of them traveling together. Uh, she was the only one who had any skill in English, and it was limited. So lack of signage, lack of maps, lack of people in stores who could, could, could communicate with them. That, that's a way of, I mean, of being aware of that. And that's something we've known for oh, 20 years that uh, European, particularly Europe, uh, German passengers come with different expectations and there's ways to generate more income from them. But that's being proactive and the city doesn't really do that very well. Hmm, interesting that you bring up a good point there uh, about uh, I guess we don't necessarily realize that you know we have people coming in from all these different countries that wouldn't wouldn't necessarily uh, need some of those some of the signage and stuff like that. But well, well, there's a classic story. This was back, this was from back in the early days of cruise tourism here in the probably in the 90s, where uh, one of the, one of the bicycle shops decided, well, I'll take bicycles down in the port and we'll rent a lot of bikes on the people getting off the ship, and of course you 
had the typical U.S. tourist got off the ship, and they're not going to ride a bicycle given the size of their gut. Uh, so they didn't rent any bikes. So the next ship that came in, they didn't go down there. Um, but it was a ship from Germany, and people from Europe are used to biking and walking, and they went up Long's Hill to rent bikes, <laughs> right? Um but it's just recognizing that different ships bring different types of people, different ships. For example, uh, many of our ships this year, particularly early season, are expedition ships. Those passengers are quite different uh, than passengers on a Royal Caribbean or a Princess or a Holland America ship. Um, and uh, so what, they, what they're willing to buy, what they're likely to, uh, to do here um, – can be tailored so you can maximize uh, the potential income. And Ross, another thing that I wanted to touch on in terms of your research is that I I know that you've done some uh, some looking into crime and disappear- disappearances on board cruise ships as well. Uh, yes, I've, well, I've, I've, I've pr- probably one of the uh, the only p- p- people who, who has maintained not just a database, but has also uh, researched bo- both people overboard and uh, sexual assaults on board cruise ships. The sexual assault research is is startling in that uh, a cruise ship is, it, one is fifty percent more likely to be sexually assaulted on a carnival cruise ship than on land in Canada. Um, the other thing that's startling, and this is industry-wide, 34% of the victims of sexual assault on cruise ships are under the age of 18. Um, that, that's based on the industry's own data. Um, and uh, uh, it, it, it continues to be verified. I do, I do work as an expert witness in, in, in lawsuits and in discovery, that same division in terms of age, about, you know, about one-third of the victims are, are, are consistently uh, you know, uh, minors. Um, so if, what, what, what that tells me is as a parent going on a cruise ship, uh, I want to I protect my child. I want to be watching them. Um, and it's not being overly controlling, but being aware that a cruise ship has many of the same risks as anywhere else in the world and be sure to oversee your child as best you can. Um, you know, I mean, and I mean, looking at, looking at it from a, I mean, this is kind of perverse, but from the industry's perspective, there was a sexual assault of a 16-year-old uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, she had gone to the bar uh, and had told the bartender it was her birthday, and he started serving her champagne, and the next thing you know, she, uh, she was with him and was raped. Uh, in the lawsuit uh, against the cruise line, um, the lawyer for, for for the cruise line argued that well, it was the parents' own fault for the sexual assault because they weren't showing adequate uh, supervision of their child. And so, therefore, it wasn't the fault of the bartender. Um, amazing, you know? That that is really uh, quite startling. Some of the, some of what you just mentioned. What can be done uh, to to try to curb some of those trends? I mean, some quite startling statistics and and, and yeah. situations you just detailed. Well, a lot of it is trying to make it more visible or more transparent. The the industry has is very adept and has an interest in keeping these things under wraps. 
so it's you know any highly visible case or the most egregious cases um, are, are, are when, when they are when there's a lawsuit um, there are uh, there are non-disclosure agreements so you know technically what happens is uh, maybe reported when the incident first occurs, but often it just disappears. Um, you know, I think the ones that do make it out, for example, people overboard, there was a, there was a case uh, a couple of years ago uh, of, of a 22-year-old, last name is Skoken, who went overboard from a Royal Caribbean ship. Now, he, 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 had been, he had been served, I think it was 30 drinks within the previous, oh yeah, you know, you know, 15 hours or 18 hours. So he, he, he was... Um, he, he was well lit up, so to speak, and uh, he was goofing around with some friends uh, on the on, on the top deck of the of, of the ship one evening, and ended up uh, fall, accidentally falling overboard. That's what the three people who were there said. Uh, it took an hour and a half for the ship to get a rescue uh, vessel into the water to try to search for him, and of course they never found him. Uh, in the lawsuit against the, the cruise line Royal Caribbean, they again argued it was it, it was the parents' fault for not adequately supervising their 22-year-old son, and it wasn't their fault in any way at all. Wow, some very interesting points there, Ross. We're up against the break, but uh, thank you so much for sharing some of these, some of this really interesting research with us. Okay, well, great, great. Uh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Awesome. That was Ross Klein. He's a, re- uh, a professor at Memorial University, specializing um, in the cruise industry. We're going to take a break on On Target, and we'll be back right after this. Join Brian Medor weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels, newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan behind the mic this afternoon for Linda Swain, who is off today. And now for the second half of the show, we're going to take the program in a different direction, and we're going to focus in on Indigenous issues. Uh, There's been quite a bit to go through over the last couple of weeks. We had uh, the royal visit there last week, which uh, there's a big focus on truth and reconciliation uh, woven in through that entire visit across the country. And, of course, Monday was the anniversary, grim anniversary, of the discovery of 215 unmarked graves at a former residential school site in Kamloops, B.C. So, uh, in light of all that, we have the executive director of First Light, Stacy House, joining the program now. Stacy, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And well, thank you so much for joining the program today. And I guess before we get into the events of the last couple of weeks and everything that has sort of transpired, uh, I guess give us a little bit of, ba- of background for those who don't know. What is First Light and what's some of what you do there? Yeah, well, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about everything that we do at First Light, but we are a nonprofit charitable organization that started in 1983 in a small office at Memorial University. We have grown quite a bit, and we have about 70 staff, and we have five locations throughout St. John's. And so we provide programs and services to the urban Indigenous community here in the city, and we are also open to non-Indigenous participants as well. Exactly, and I I was going to mention going through the First Light website, there's so much uh, that First Light does. In terms of your programs and services, how important is that to have in an urban center like in St. John's? It's crucial. You know, that's why the Friendship Center started back in the early 80s. 
um, was to provide that support, that cultural connection to urban Indigenous people who may have been transitioning here from rural communities, um, such as myself. I'm from Neobogic First Nation, Con River. I moved here 16 years ago to, to attend post-secondary, and, you know, I experienced that loss of cultural connection, um, trying to navigate the systems and institutions and not really having anyone that understood except for, you know, my friends who were also from Con River. And when I found the Friendship Center, I just felt at home. And I've been here ever since. Uh, we've grown to uh, providing programs and services for that cultural present uh, cultural connection, but also to uh, preserve our culture, language, and we also provide services such as medical transportation, cultural support, justice support. Um, we also do we manage a few social enterprises, such as training, cultural diversity training. We are about to open our medical hostel. We do Aboriginal patient navigator employment programs, and the list just goes on. I want to touch on something that you that you brought up a little bit ago about your own experience when you came first came to St. John's and how challenging that was to, I guess, be be disconnected from uh, those aspects of your culture that you grew up with. How how difficult was how difficult of a transition was that for you? Yeah, in the city, you don't have access to land like you do from rural communities, and so it's very busy. Um, it's a challenge to be still sometimes and just to connect with the land, connect with nature, um, access to Indigenous elders whom we receive so much of our, you know, teachings and um, traditions from. And so there are a few elders in the city. However, um, there, there aren't many, right? Not like from our home communities where we are just completely immersed in our culture. Um, so in St. John's, it's, it's difficult to experience that loss of cultural connection. And if it wasn't for First Light, I may have not been able to be as successful with completing my post-secondary education, going on to complete my master's. And I want to make sure that, you know, we are providing that support to all Indigenous people. There are Indigenous people that grew up in the city as well, but we want to make sure that, you know, people maintain that cultural connection or cultural revitalization. We have a child care center as well, so we are open to Indigenous and non-Indigenous children, and the children are just immersed in the culture. We have elders that will go into the daycare. We have drummers, throat singers. They do smudging ceremonies, and the kids just grow up with that being a part of their daily lives. And I think that with Indigenous teaching and teaching children that, you know, everyone is equal and we all belong and we all work together, I think that is so important. And I feel very humbled and privileged that our organization gets to play such an important role in the lives of children. And Stacey, you brought up something interesting there too. 
you mentioned how your experience was from going from uh, from being, I guess, immersed in, in your culture on a daily basis to going to St. John's and, and sort of that struggle. But the flip side of that, uh, as you mentioned, would be, you know, uh, people from indigenous backgrounds growing up in the city who, uh, you know, if it weren't for organizations like First Light, wouldn't have the same sort of access um, to some of uh, some of the aspects of their culture. So it's uh, I, I guess it highlights the importance of having that uh, for people that are growing up in uh, ur- more urbanized centers as well. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, we are constantly advocating for urban indigenous people. And as I said, you know, I'm from the Apokic First Nation. I grew up on the reserve. However, I've been living in the city for almost two decades. I have two children who are growing up here, and they will have a completely different experience than what I had growing up on the reserve. So that's why I'm just so passionate about everything that we do as an organization to provide that wraparound support to make sure that even if you don't grow up in the culture, you can still be proud of your cultural heritage and proud of who you are. Now, Stacey, uh, this past Monday, of course, was a, v- a very significant anniversary. It was uh, just over one year ago now that uh, 215 unmarked graves discovered at a former residential school site in B.C. And this past Monday, uh, ceremonies were held in Kamloops, uh, marking that uh, that discovery, which really shook the country. Um, wh- wh- what were some of your thoughts and uh, reflections now one year on uh, from that discovery? Yeah, I mean, it's so unfortunate that people are just realizing that this happened. Um, You know, we have all, as Indigenous people, we have known that this was going on, residential schools happened, the abuse, the deaths, all of these things were occurring. And it took the discovery of the unmarked graves and, you know, the remains of these children to realize how significant it is. And, you know, 215, as you know, was just the start. There's been thousands of uh, remains that were found. And the education is ongoing, and people are still learning about the history. And I also think that there's a bit of unlearning to be done. Uh, When we talk about racism and uh, discrimination and stereotypes and things, perceptions that people have of indigenous people in this country, like especially adults, they need to unlearn a lot of the things that they once believed and discover the truth. And, you know, hence the truth and reconciliation uh, calls to action. Like we need to acknowledge the truth of what has happened in this country and, you know, honor those victims to the residential school system and honor the survivors and all indigenous people who are still experiencing that intergenerational trauma, which is very real. And Stacey, I, I remember last year uh, after this all came to light going out and I, I was talking to a few people and I think one of the, the big themes from from a lot of people that I got uh, who I spoke with was that they said that you know they knew about the residential school system, but at that time they didn't really know about the residential school system, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they may have known that they existed, but to what extent the abuse and um, everything that happened in those schools, you know, there are stories that are just completely horrific and traumatizing. And it is a very, very sad reality that this did happen. And I mean, right up until 1996, people think that, oh, this is so far away in the past, but the last residential school closed in Canada in 1996. That really wasn't that long ago. We're speaking with First Light Executive Director Stacy House. We're up against our final break of the day, but we're going to continue this conversation when we come back. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM Morning Show. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan filling in today for Linda Swain. And right now we're speaking with Executive Director of First Light, Stacy House, uh, in light of, of course, the uh, anniversary of the discovery of 215 unmarked graves at a residential school site in Kamloops. Of course, that anniversary was marked on Monday. Um, and Stacy you know we were having this conversation before the break uh what has it been like for for you and for first light over the last year and i guess helping members of your community have you know come come to terms with it and dealing with the some of the shocking uh discoveries that have been made yeah i mean it's been really hard on our community members um especially our elders and residential school survivors. Uh, We are very fortunate to be able to have employees um, that are trained mental health workers and um, able to provide that cultural support, but it it affects all of us. And it's a lot of, um, you know, we are there for our community. We were there in ceremony. We were there to support and sing and drum and kind of, you know, start the healing process together. But as you can imagine, excuse me, the broader community and the non-Indigenous community, because we are the only Indigenous organization in St. John's, we were just completely overwhelmed with the requests to, you know, educate Um, and It's challenging at times because some um, expect that it is our responsibility to educate, but we believe that it's their responsibility to learn. And so we don't want to put ourselves in a position where we are putting all of this emotional labor back on the Indigenous communities. We want to be there. We want to educate. We want people to ask questions. So we are actually designing some um, tools, like a toolkit, uh, what your organization can do, especially in regards to Orange Shirt Day, because we have a lot of requests, of course, because of the recent uh, National Day of Truth and Reconciliation for September 30th that the federal government declared in 2021. Um, So we are trying to develop some resources that we can share with the broader community while still being there to support our Indigenous community who are in the midst of that healing process. And in the time since uh, the discovery last year, as you mentioned, there there have been you know countless more discoveries and in, in the thousands. Um, what do you know about efforts to search sites in this province? 
I'm not aware of any efforts to search um, the residential school sites that were here in this province. I do know that, um, you know, there were five schools here in Newfoundland and Labrador, and many people were not even aware that residential schools happened here. And, you know, although these schools didn't open until the mid-20th century, children were still forcibly separated from their families, forbidden to acknowledge their Indigenous culture or speak their own languages, just the same as the schools which opened in the 1800s. And as a result, survivors and their families continue to experience that intergenerational trauma. Um, what we are doing, uh, we also do a cultural diversity training. It acts as a social enterprise for us. So we go out and educate organizations, individuals about the history of Indigenous culture in this province and the history of these residential schools and um, also talk about ways to not only reflect, acknowledge, but, you know, June 21st is coming up, which is National Indigenous Peoples Day. And that is a day that we want to celebrate our culture and celebrate our resilience. And, you know, we are thriving here. And, you know, we've been here for thousands and thousands of years. And there's been so much harm in the past. But the fact that our cultures are strong, resilient, and we're still teaching our children, I think is something to be very proud of. And now, Stacey, I did want to mention as well, uh, last week when the royal visit occurred, there was a big focus on Indigenous reconciliation um, in woven within the entirety of those uh, those events that were held uh, right across the country. Um, I understand you took in some of those ceremonies. What, what was that like for you, and what does seeing something like that mean? Yeah, so I was involved in an event at the Heart Garden, actually, with um, a drum group that I'm with called Eastern Owl. So we performed a song to honor the residential school victims and survivors called Baby. And it speaks about the residential school experience. And we were there with our elders, with residential school survivors, and with the Indigenous leaders of this province. And I know that, you know, the, the theme or focus, I guess, of this royal visit was reconciliation. Um, but I think that, you know, we have to move beyond just stating reconciliation as a theme or as a buzzword. We had to see action, and that's what leads to reconciliation. There's been so much work that has been done by Indigenous people, by survivors of these residential schools, and the result of that are these very important documents, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, the MMIWG calls for justice. The work has been done, the stories have been shared, and the recommendations are there, and we need to see action on the implementation of those calls. And in my opinion, we haven't seen enough action yet, and we are in a time of accountability. So what does action look like? You mentioned the recommendations. Um, what does action look like to you? 
Yeah, there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of calls. Um, so that is a pretty big question. Um, but I think a first step, a good, great first step is to include Indigenous peoples, all Indigenous peoples, in that plan, in that action plan. We need to have accountability. We need to follow up on the calls. Which ones can we uh, implement here in this province? Like, we haven't seen the provincial government um, develop a coordinated approach to implementing the calls to action and calls for justice. So First Light, through a coalition called First Voice, um, we're actually working on a community action plan in priority areas that were shared by our community members. And so, you know, we are taking that work to develop a community action plan. We're, I'm also working with a provincial Indigenous Women's Committee in relation to the MMIWG calls for justice. We are also providing recommendations to the province. All these things are just so important, and we need to be included in the conversations. As urban Indigenous people, there is no representation when it comes to the weekly calls with the Premier, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, I grew up on the reserve. I'm from Neobokic First Nation, but my experience now as an urban Indigenous person is much different than my experience then when I grew up on the reserve. And so it's so important to include us in those conversations. There's, they talk about reconciliation. There's so much change that is being proposed, such as the Biafic statue, the Confederation mural at the um, Confederation building, which is supposed to be designed by Indigenous artists, the renaming of the colonial building, all of these things that are occurring in St. John's need to include the voices of the urban indigenous people in the city. Stacy House, executive director of First Light. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, a very important conversation to have, but uh, unfortunately we, we are up against the clock, but uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. Again, that was Stacy House of First Light. All right, that does it for me on today's edition of the program. Linda Swain will be back in the saddle tomorrow uh, after a much well-deserved uh, break. And I would be remiss uh, if I didn't mention that uh, or say congratulations to Linda for her Lifetime Achievement Award that was announced yesterday. Uh, there's no time for me to possibly go into how much she deserves it, but trust me when I say that no one deserves it more. So thank you so much for tuning into the program today and we'll talk soon. Bye for now.